Good morning, church. Nice to see all of you. So this morning we're going to continue in our series on James entitled Faith That Works. Um, and uh, I was assigned James 2, 14 to 26. So this last week I was reflecting on and praying through the book of James. There was this question that kept coming back to me as I, I was reading through it. And uh, the question is this, what is James' biggest pastoral concern for the church? What is it that the Holy Spirit has put a burden on James' heart to address? What is weighing on him when he writes this epistle? And I've been reflecting on that question um, throughout the week. It dawned on me that the thing that I've been struggling with this last week, the thing that I've been giving a lot of thought to you, happens to be one of the biggest concerns in the book of James. That concern is counterfeit faith within the church. Now, counterfeit faith um, is really one of the most terrifying and dangerous things that we can encounter in the faith. And here's why. Um, A lot of times when we hear the term counterfeit faith, we immediately think kind of of these extreme examples. So we think of the pastor who has starving people in his church, um, but he has his private jet, uh, his million-dollar mansion, his nice watch, his nice car. You know, so we kind of see that contradiction, and, and it's easy to point out. Or we think of the ministry that goes to an event, wants to share the gospel. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But then they yell at people and scream at people about the love of Jesus. Right? So we can see a contradiction there as well. But what we often don't think about when we talk about um, counterfeit faith is the type of faith, um, type of counterfeit faith that it's so subtle that no one ever takes a, a double take. No one ever stops and slows down and asks the tough questions until that counterfeit faith has already been exposed for being counterfeit. Now, if you've been involved in the church long enough, you've probably come across uh, this sort of thing. I, I pray that you haven't. But um, I have, and it's, I mean, I've experienced it a number of times. Um, but this one in particular, I've never shared before. So the first pastor I ever interned for down in San Diego, he was actually disqualified from ministry. Um, now, I don't know exactly where he's at. I don't know if he's repented I don't know, I'm not making any definitive claims about his faith, but um, he was disqualified because he had some pretty major sin issues that he kept to himself, kept away from the church. It got to the point uh, where when it was exposed, he had to walk away from the ministry, and I think he was ultimately so embarrassed that he walked away from that church. Now, this was a pastor that married Shannon and me. Um, This was the pastor that wrote my letters of recommendation so I could come down to Westminster. Uh, This was the pastor that I did ministry with for four years. And uh, I just got to say, I didn't didn't expect that to happen. I thought he was going to plant a church. I think he was the most gifted uh, communicator I had come across. You know, I thought he was going places, um, (laughs) uh, kind of in a matter of speaking. Um, so it really came as a shock to me to find you know, that he had had this hidden sin in his life. Um, 
right? And that, that's terrifying to think that the person you're doing ministry with, the person that you think uh, you know, uh, you know, has these major underlying issues that are, that are contradicting true faith. Um, so as I was working through all this this last week and as I was thinking about counterfeit faith, I was reminded of a story that I think really illustrates this point. Now, back in 2014, I remember reading this story a while back, but in 2014, there was a Florida woman named Tarshima Bryce. And Tarshima, she became famous for a pretty simple but ingenious counterfeiting uh, scheme. So here's what she did, and um, I don't encourage you guys to go do this. Um, <laughs> I hope that uh, you know, the government doesn't take this sermon down off our website or something after I tell you. Um, but she would take normal $5 bills, she would remove the ink from those $5 bills, and then she would just run those $5 bills through her printer, and she would print $50 bills where the $5 uh, used to be. Um, so it seems pretty simple, pretty obvious, but it was actually pretty ingenious because these counterfeit $50 bills actually had all the marks that a $50 bill had. Right? They had the counterfeit uh, you know, security strip. They had the watermarks. They had all the appropriate colored fibers, uh, which I don't know a lot about money, but I'm told the colored fibers are important. Um, and they even pass a little test that cashiers do at Costco and places. They mark the $20 bill, uh, you know, and they look for the color of the ink. So it passed all those things. But there was, ma- there was one major problem um, with these bills. When you held them up in the light, in the watermark, you would expect to see President Grant's face. But what you would see is Lincoln's face staring back at you. Right? So there's a pretty big discrepancy. You had uh, Grant on the front and then Lincoln in the watermark. Right? And sounds obvious. Sounds obvious. Sounds like a dead giveaway. But guess how long she went before she was found out? It was two years. And she had already printed ten dollars to $20,000 worth of bills with her printer uh, before she was found out. Um, this is all because the cashiers didn't stop. They didn't slow down enough. They did the pen test, they walked away, it looked good. They didn't stop and look at the discrepancy that Grant was on the front and Lincoln was in the watermark. And that's, that's what James is telling us to do this morning. Um, he's telling us to slow down. He wants us to analyze. He wants us to ask the tough questions that make us feel uncomfortable. He wants us to see the inconsistencies in our faith. Just to help us out in this process, James actually models this for us quite a few times in the book of James. So uh, he's really good at spotting inconsistencies. And uh, I'll just read three for you here. But chapter one, uh, James points out the inconsistency of the one who asks God for something, but then doubts when asking. Right? So you have what seems to be faith and doubt kind of cohabitating. That's an inconsistency, James says. Chapter 3 points out the inconsistency of the one who blesses God, but curses the one who's made in the image of God. Again, another major inconsistency. And then last, he points out the inconsistency of those who have no control over what tomorrow will bring, 
and then they act and plan and speak as if they do, right? They act as if they're sovereign when they have no control over what tomorrow will bring. So it's this type of thing, and it's this sort of thing that James wants us to wrap our mind around. It's this process that he wants us to apply to our life so that we would expose counterfeit faith and hypocrisy and unbelief in our life. Now, before we get into our passage this morning, we'll get there in a second. I'm just going to make three quick qualifications so that we know um, what it means to you know, kind of a- apply these principles to us. So the first is that James wants us to question the sincerity of our faith, not so that we would live in fear and doubt. He doesn't want us to be in a state of perpetual uh, fear and, and uneasiness. James wants us to test our faith so that we would be confirmed in faith so that we would have assurance that we are truly in Jesus. And if we find that we're not, he wants us to turn to Jesus and have genuine faith. He wants us to repent from our counterfeit faith. James is not trying to um, be a fear monger here. Second, um, there is a distinction between hypocrisy and counterfeit faith. So all of us, um, I would wager, are hypocrites. We might not know that we're inconsistent in our life, Um, But we all are hypocrites. We all have inconsistencies. We all have things in our life that we need to grow in. Um, James is concerned about that, uh, but he is focusing here on counterfeit faith. And counterfeit faith is a little different. Counterfeit faith is the profession of faith um, without the substance of faith. Ultimately, that person doesn't really believe. So I think when we use this term counterfeit faith, we should just be careful not to throw it in any and all situations that might have some hypocrisy or inconsistencies. Um, coming to, the, coming to um, the conclusion that something is counterfeit requires a lot of thinking, it requires a lot of prayer, it requires a lot of reflection. And then last, um, biblical authors are especially concerned that we seek to expose unbelief and hypocrisy in our own lives first, right? We're called to do that first in our lives before we go to our friends and our family and start uh, poking out um, the problems in, in them. Um, this is what Jesus himself says in, in Matthew 7, 5. First, take the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So these qualifications... Um, we jump into our passage. Now, um, our passage this morning presents us with another inconsistency. There's a, a major problem that James is putting forward for us, and that's where we're going to camp out today. So if you have your Bibles, I know we already read the text, but we're going to move kind of line by line, more or less, um, so you can feel free to follow along there, or the scripture will be up here. So verse 14, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So we have this idea on trial here. James is putting forward this idea and he's, he's testing it before us so that we can see whether it's valid or not. And that idea is that someone can believe in Jesus without becoming more and more like Jesus. So that's the idea on trial. Now, how does that hold up? Do you guys see any inconsistencies there between those? 
between that profession and, and um, lack of action? Well, I think for James, he sees a pretty big contradiction there. And, and I'll, I'll just point out two, two major issues that he sees. The first, he says, is this type of faith is a dead faith. We see that here in, in verse 15 and following. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So let me kind of uh, put this in, in more familiar terms. So it's summer right now. Um, so imagine that after church, after we sing songs and, and uh, worship God, I head out and I uh, swing by the store because I want to throw a barbecue at my house. And so I go to the store, I load up with steak and ribs and watermelon and drinks and, and all that sort of thing. And as I'm coming out of the store, you know, I got my full cart, I run in to Pastor Matt. And Pastor Matt, you know, for whatever reason, has been stranded in this grocery store parking lot all day. And uh, Pastor Matt is starting to overheat. Uh, he's thirsty. He's hungry. I think his head is starting to get sunburned because um, he has no hair. And, uh, you know, he's distressed. And so he comes up to me and he says, Brock, I'm so excited. What a relief that you are here. Can you help me out, man? Can you help me out, brother? And then I turn to him and say, yeah, of course, Pastor Matt. I got just the thing you need. Here, uh, here's Matthew 6, 25. Uh, it speaks all about uh, times of trial and God's you know, faithfulness to provide. And then let me pray for you and, and bless you. you know? So I hang out with Pastor Matt. I read him scripture. I pray with him. I bless him. And then I hop in my AC uh, with my full cart of food, and I go on my way. Now, I know it sounds kind of silly, but how useful were my words to Pastor Matt? They weren't useful in any way. Um, you know, my words didn't feed him. Uh, they didn't quench his thirst. They didn't uh, help his sunburn out on his head. Um, you know, they were, they were empty. And that's what James is getting at when he says, when we profess faith in Christ and don't become more like Christ, um, then we should start to consider that that profession is empty, right? It's like writing a check uh, that can't be cashed, that has no money in the bank account. That piece of paper means nothing. Those words mean nothing, right? And so uh, faith, James says, without works is dead. And second, uh, James gives us another reason. James says that this type of faith is a demonic faith. Which, you know, when you read that, seems kind of uh, startling. But skip with me down to, to verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Right? You can kind of hear the sarcasm in his voice there. Even the demons believe and shudder. So we have... Uh, James here, and he's actually quoting probably one of the most well-known passages of the Bible to the first century Jew. We might not be familiar with it, but for the first century Jew, 
Uh, this was repeated every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. And it's called the Shema. Um, it was basically, you know, the John 3.16 of its day. Everyone knew it. And it goes like this. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jews in the first century, uh, they would use this passage to affirm distinct monotheism. So Jews would, um, you know, had been oppressed by many uh, political um, forces and, and many nations, and uh, with that came polytheism. And so, uh, you know, the Jews of the time used this verse to assert the distinct monotheism, the distinct religion that they believed. So for them, it was really a test of orthodoxy. Shema was proof that you really had uh, the true faith, the faith in the one true God. So when James is talking about people who affirm this, he's talking about the people that um, affirm the historic Christian faith. He's not talking about people on the fringes. He's talking about people who know their Bible, who um, in their theology are, are orthodox. And this is what's crazy. Uh, James says demons believe, right? They're actually some of the most orthodox creatures in God's creation. They believe the Shema. They believe the scriptures. But instead of taking that truth and using it for the glory of God, they twist that scripture. They rebel against God, right? They, they lack obedience to the word that they know. And because of that, because of that discrepancy, they, they stand condemned. I think this is what James is getting at when he says that the demons believe and they shudder. Right? They know the truth, they acknowledge it, they believe it, but they shudder because they don't obey it, because they stand under condemnation. That truth is the very thing that will ultimately destroy them. And this is what... James is doing, he's lumping those people who say that they believe in Jesus but don't actually follow Jesus with the demons, right? Those who are in that position should also shudder because if they don't repent and turn to true faith, they stand condemned. Now, I know personally for me, you know, Pastor Matt told of you guys, I just went through seminary. Um, this was a huge thing for me when I was in seminary. I had to constantly stop and ask tough questions. Um, I had to constantly ask whether my studying was genuinely leading to worship of Jesus and obedience to Jesus, or whether um, my heart was becoming dull and uninterested. So I came up with, you know, lots of questions in seminary to kind of probe my heart, but let me just give you three of them, and as you study the scriptures and pursue Jesus in the scriptures, and just kind of keep these in mind. So the first is, has studying the scriptures become a hobby rather than a cross to bear, right? Is studying the scriptures something that you're just interested in, that you find entertaining, or is it something that beckons you into God's mission? Is it something that is calling you in to God's story? Are you engaging with, with God's story? Second, has studying the scriptures become all about having the right answers? So nothing wrong with right answers. Um, I spent three years trying to get some right answers down. But has studying the right answers um, overshadowed having relationship with Jesus from knowing him personally? 
And then the last one is, has studying the scriptures left me desensitized to the glories of Jesus? Right? There's people, and I've experienced this as well, that you spend so much time studying about Jesus, um, and you know all about him and everything the scriptures say about him, but you stop worshiping him. That doesn't, it's a major inconsistency. Our knowledge of Jesus should turn and lead us to worship. Um, so as I you know, sort through these questions all the time, um, I'm reminded of the why of my studies. And the why is to know Jesus, to obey Jesus, to worship Jesus, to trust Jesus. That's why we study the scriptures and, and learn about Jesus. So for James, a, a faith that claims to believe in Jesus but does not obey Jesus is dead and it's demonic. So it's pretty clear at this point, um, James has really made it a point to really connect uh, our faith and our works, right? I mean, it's really obvious. Um, but what is that relationship? How should we understand um, the relationship between faith and works? So for, um, excuse me, uh, so James tells us in, in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works or through my works. So the unique thing about faith is um, that it's kind of inherently immaterial or invisible. I mean, that I can't point to my faith in and of itself. I can't point um, to my faith kind of just in this bare form. Um, and you can't either. You can't prove to me that you have genuine faith, just in and of itself. I think that's what James is getting at here when he challenges um, this idea. But what's interesting is that even though faith is immaterial or invisible, faith has effects in the real world. And Scripture calls those effects works. So I can't point to my faith, but I can point to my work as evidence that I have faith. And you, you can't point to your faith in and of itself, but you can point to your works as evidence of your faith. And that's what James is, is getting at here. Um, he wants us to see that there is a relationship between faith and works. Faith is, um, you know, when we trust in Jesus, and works is an outworking and confirmation that we truly do trust in Jesus. This is what James means when he says he will demonstrate his faith by his works, right? His Works are confirming, completing that confession. So let me just kind of give you a, a real-world example to um, illustrate this. So if you follow the news, um, I'm kind of a science nerd, so I, I follow uh, science articles and, and science news all the time. But um, I constantly hear reports about uh, scientists and astronomers discovering new planets. So I don't know if you view have seen any of that. Um, recently, there's actually been a lot of it. And uh, astronomers, in particular, have been looking for planets outside our solar system. And they're called exoplanets. Right? They're planets that revolve around other stars. But what scientists um, often don't tell you, you know, they claim that they've found 3,600 exoplanets. What they don't tell you is that of those 3,600, they've only seen and imaged 20 of them. Right, so if you go on the internet, you can only see 20 pictures of these exoplanets. 
Um, but there's this claim that there's 3,600 of them out there. So where do they get that idea? Um, well, they get that idea um, because these planets exert force on other objects around them. So they can't see them, but they know that there are effects of these planets. So they use this process called direct inferencing. So they see that a planet you know, blocks out light, or it casts a shadow, or it exerts gravitational pull. And then they know, oh, we haven't seen it, but we know it's there. Right? We can see the effects of it. So that, that's what James is, is pointing our eyes to. Um, he wants us to see this process of direct inferencing. He wants us to slow down, ask those questions, make inferences. He wants us to ask the question, do people know, can they tell that I love Jesus based on the way I live my life? Do they know that I love Jesus based on my obedience and, and love and, and worship for him? Or do they not, right? So the way that we act really gives light, sheds light on, on where our heart is and how we uh, approach Jesus and, and how we genuinely think about him. And, and to show you um, kind of just how this process works more concretely, um, James actually applies this to the life of, of the believer. Um, he especially points to the life of Abraham. He spent some time with Rahab. We're not going to have enough time there. But he focuses on the life of Abraham to demonstrate this process of direct inferencing. Um, so we're going to turn to, to verse 21, and we're going to read 21 to 24. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. So before we get into this uh, discussion, I should mention that these verses are, are pretty loaded uh, when you uh, kind of engage um, in the theological uh, conversation with other traditions and, and other churches, especially after the, the Reformation. So in particular, um, there's been much discussion on uh, verse 24 here and um, how that relates or should be reconciled with what Paul says in Romans 3.28. So let me just read those two verses for you. They'll be up here on the screen so that you can see them kind of juxtaposed together. So James says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then Paul says in Romans 3, a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So it seems like there's some tension there. Um, but as a church, we're, we're committed uh, to the inerrancy of Scripture, meaning Scriptures don't have, scriptures don't have error. We, we trust that the Scriptures are God-breathed. Um, and, and so I believe that there, there is a, a solid answer for this, this tension. Um, so I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this this last week, spent a lot of time reflecting and, and praying. I think this is what's going on here. Um, I think that Paul and James are using this word justified. Um, it's justified in English. It's dikaiao in Greek. I think Paul and James are using this in two different ways to say two totally different things, right? They're, they're focused 
is in, in two different places. Paul is using the word justified to mean to have right standing before God. And his major point is that a person has right standing before God not because of any of the works that they have done, right? Paul says apart from works of the law, but because they have faith. Paul's saying it's, it's faith in Jesus that gives us righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us through faith. That's why God counts it to us. But for James, he's using the word justified to mean um, to be vindicated or to be proven right. And his major point is that true faith is not proven just by profession alone. It's by a combination of profession and action. So I think these two, um, two passages are actually very compatible. They, they work hand in hand, and they're looking at two different aspects of genuine faith. So let me, let me just give you two reasons why. The first is actually the immediate context of James. We've already been reading um, through James. And so we know that James has been refuting the idea that works and faith can be separated. Because works are the outward manifestation of faith. Remember, they, they complete faith. They flow out of faith. They confirm faith. So when someone claims they have faith, it is their works that either vindicate or refute the claim that they have made to know Jesus. This is the way that Jesus uses the word dikaio in Matthew eleven nineteen. So he says, wisdom is justified or proven right by her deeds. Meaning the true test of faith is really not how pithy uh, something is. It's not uh, how clever something is, but rather what sort of fruit that wisdom produces. So the fruitfulness itself is proof that it is wisdom. If there is no fruit, then it's not wise, right? So that's what, what um, Jesus is pointing our eyes to. That's how he's using dikaio, and I think that's how James is using dikaio. And the second reason I think um, that they are saying two different things with the same word is really the account of Abraham in Genesis. And this is what James has been referring to uh, throughout the passage. So let's um, just kind of rehash what happens in Genesis. So all the way back in Genesis 11, um, we learn that Abraham and Sarah are unable to conceive. Right? And in the ancient Near East, this is actually um, you know, perceived as, as being a curse, to not be able to have uh, children. But God steps in, and he promises to turn that curse into blessing. So he tells Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless you with many descendants. And in turn, those descendants will bless the whole world. Right? And so God turns curse into blessing. And then in Genesis 15, God repeats this promise to Abraham. And that's where scriptures say, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. So when Paul talks about Abraham's justification in Romans and Galatians, his focus is here in Genesis 15. Remember, Paul has been asking the question, why does someone have right standing before God? 
Why does someone find themselves righteous before a just and holy God? And the answer he gives is, is faith. It's faith in Jesus. And so he turns to Abraham as the paradigm for that, and he quotes this, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. But when James talks about Abraham's justification, his focus is not in Genesis 15, primarily, but Genesis 22. So they're focusing on two different aspects of the Abraham narrative. So let's kind of fast forward. Between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, the Lord blessed Abraham and Sarah with a son, and his name was Isaac. And it was Isaac who would be the means of bringing about you know, the next phase of God's promises. Isaac you know, was the legitimate son of Abraham. He was the, the one that Abraham had put uh, hope in and, and excitement in because he was going to bring about all that God had promised him. But there was something kind of missing in, in this story, and that was um, that Abraham's faith had yet to be tested, right? His faith that he claimed in Genesis 15 had yet to be confirmed as, as being genuine. So Genesis 22 opens up, God tested Abraham. Now, how did God test Abraham? He asked him to offer up Isaac, right? He asked him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. This was his son that he had been waiting decades for. This was a son that God was going to use to bring about all of his promises. And God stops Abraham and asks him to offer up that son. So most of you know this, the story, but Abraham complies and uh, God stops Abraham from offering up his son. And then God provides a ram for him to uh, offer up as a sacrifice. But for James, the most important part about this story is the words that God speaks to Abraham afterwards. God says to Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that, that faith that you professed back in Genesis 15, now I know that it's true because I've seen your obedience. I've seen your trust in me. I've seen that even though I'm asking you to offer up your son, that I'll find a way. I'll find a way to bring about these promises. So James looks back at Genesis 15 and he says, true, Abraham was reckoned righteous before God because he genuinely believes. So James is not contesting that point with Paul. Uh, what he, but what he says is that belief wasn't demonstrated to be genuine until it had been tested and confirmed in Genesis 22. So James wants us to see 15 and 22 working hand in hand, and, and he wants us to see that Genesis 22 brings Genesis 15 to completion. It fulfills the narrative. Now, I don't have a slide for this verse, but if you have your Bible, it's James uh, same chapter, verse 23. But I think this is what James means when he says, and the scripture was fulfilled. Meaning it came to fruition, it, it came to completion. Uh, that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
So genuine belief happened back in Genesis 15. That belief was demonstrated and came to completion in Genesis 22 when Abraham obeyed. So James wants us to see that um, together. So hopefully, um, you know, with this little section on on, um, James and Paul, we can kind of see how these two verses uh, work together. There's people who have written books on this tension. Um, So we don't have enough time to cover all that ground, but um, I just want you to keep that in mind as you're working through this, that they're looking at two different aspects of of, um, salvation and talking about justification in in two different ways. So that being said, um, let's just take one one minute. We're going to kind of finish this with this. But could you imagine being in Abraham's shoes? Imagine that God had physically manifested himself to you. This is not something that God does every day. He manifests himself to you. He promises you that through you, he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And then he makes a covenant with you. And then he seems to fulfill that covenant, you know, 25 years later, providing a legitimate son. And then finally when that son begins to hit maturity and it's time for that son to become the means for carrying out those promises, God asks you, offer me up that son. Um, That's an intense situation to be in, right? Um, But what's, what's the point? Why does God ask this of Abraham? The point is this, if there was anything in the world that Abraham uh, might value more than God, it was Isaac. If there was anything that Abraham might turn away from God over, it would be Isaac. Isaac was nearest and dearest to his heart. So God um, challenges him. God challenges him. This is a true test of faith. If Abraham fails this test, In that profession of faith back in Genesis 15, it it wasn't legitimate. But if he passes the test, then there's nothing else that can shake his faith. There's nothing else that can undermine him because that is the single most important thing to him. So this is a true test of faith. And this is how God tests our hearts, right? God is not in the business of, of making our lives suck in kind of this general, uh, nebulous way. Instead, God locks in on our weaknesses. He locks in on our idolatries. He locks in on the things that we say that we can't live without, the things that we look to for joy and fulfillment and completion, the things that we look to for salvation apart from him. He locks in on those things, then he starts to apply pressure, right? I don't know if you guys have felt that pressure in your life, Um, but if you haven't, you will, right? Sometimes God uses a chisel. He kind of chisels away things. Um, sometimes he files things down, and then sometimes he has to pull out a sledgehammer and smash the idolatry in your life. And I, I know I've experienced kind of that life-shattering uh, trial, um, but it was ultimately, ultimately for my good. It, it exposed the counterfeit faith in my life. Now, 
you might be thinking to yourself at, at this point, uh, this whole situation kind of sounds cruel. Uh, God sees our weaknesses and then he targets them. Um, but wouldn't it be more cruel if God left our idolatries, if he left our hypocrisy unchecked? Wouldn't it be more cruel that we would be found condemned because God didn't challenge us about our faith, because God didn't step in and take away the things that were drawing us away from him? I think that would be more cruel if we were found condemned because God didn't intervene in our life. Um, God tests us not because um, he wants us to struggle. He doesn't test us because he's cruel. He tests us because he loves us. The scripture says that when he tests us, it's actually confirmation that he loves us. God doesn't test his children in the same way that he tests the world. He tests his children in a way that turns them to repentance, in a way that turns them to true faith and salvation. So when we find tests, we, we find God's love. So how, this is how Hebrews 12 puts it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate. You are bastard children and not sons. God's test in our life is confirmation that he loves us. And I, I know that as I have faced severe trials in my life, I have turned to Hebrews 12. It has been one of the most helpful verses for me to know the, the, what I'm struggling with um, is not coincidental, right? What I'm struggling with is because I'm idolatrous. What I'm struggling with is because I turn away from God. What I struggle with is because I'm inconsistent. So God targets those things, and he reminds me in that that he is a good father. His trial reminds me that he loves me, Right? He reminds me that he is a father who cares for my spiritual well-being. He's a father that won't leave me in my unbelief. And he's a father that also provided his son so that I could become a son, right? In the same way that uh, Abraham was asked to offer up a son, um, God offered up his son so that I could become one. So I remember all this in the midst of my trial, reminded that God is good. Right? God is good. I think that's why James opens the book, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Because those trials are not incidental. They're the love of God. They're the mark of God in your life so that you would grow, right? So that it would produce steadfastness and obedience and, and all these things. So I don't know where you're, you're at right now, but I encourage you, when you face trials, Remember, God is, is showing you what C.S. Lewis calls severe mercy. It's severe because it involves um, a means, an instrument that's extremely challenging, right? It involves trial and suffering and pain, but it's mercy. Because the ultimate end is good. The ultimate end is eternal fellowship with God and holiness and enjoyment 
That's why God brings severe mercy into our life. So let me just uh, close with this. I'm going to read an encouragement from 1 Peter 1. And it's pretty uh, grand. It's it's pretty uh, wide-sweeping. And and in the midst of it, we kind of see how our trials fit into place with, with God's plan of redemption. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you who through faith are protected by God's power for the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer various trials. So the authenticity of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father because you have sent your Son before us to endure all trials on our behalf, uh, to pay for us and to purchase us so that when we face trials, we don't face trials to earn our salvation. We face them to enter into holiness and to become more like you. And we enter them with the strength of your Son who has gone before us, who has purchased all that we need. So, Father, we come before you in our struggling um, and ask that you would meet us, God. We ask that you would give us the strength that we need. We ask that you would demonstrate your love to us by chiseling away and hammering off and doing whatever you need to to remove hypocrisy and unbelief and consistent faith. But we know this process is, is painful. It's not fun. Your scripture even says that no one likes to undergo it, and yet, Lord, let us count it as a joy. Let us count it as a joy that you would be so kind as to target our unbelief and our idolatry and remove it from us so that we might be with you for eternity, so that we might not turn away in unbelief, so that we might not drift. God, check our hearts and confirm us in the faith. Confirm us and give us assurance of of your goodness. Remind us that you are our Father. Lord, and for those of us who find that they don't have counterfeit, or that they do have counterfeit faith, Lord, I ask that you would turn them to you. Give them repentance. Give them grace. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us in our brokenness and our suffering and give us what we need to endure. Pray these things in your name.